So values are beliefs that create cultural norms. A lot of high-handed words that really mean how we work together, how we operate. And really, in other words, they determine how people behave in your team, in your business. So think about how powerful norms are. If I invite you over to my house for dinner with my family, and we have a norm of saying a prayer before we eat, how likely are you that you will also at least act like you are praying when my family does? Hey, Construction Nation. Welcome to Lead with Trust. I'm Sue Dyer. And I've been on a three-decade journey to figure out how to make sure our construction projects succeed and produce some extraordinary results. My trusted leader journey has led me to work on over 4,000 construction projects worth over $180 billion. In this podcast, I'm here to teach you everything I've learned. One thing I know is that it starts with the leaders of the businesses and organizations that come together to build a project. If that's you, let's get going. Construction Nation, this is Sue Dyer and welcome to episode 42 of Lead with Trust. Today's episode is about evaluating the ability to perform. So many times I have gone into companies and found leaders that were really perplexed and really struggling by trying to understand the poor performance that was happening with an employee and then subsequently with the entire team, it impacted the entire team. I recall one person who was a project leader on a $70 million roadway project that I was uh, asked to work on. She kept citing the provisions of the specification in every conversation she had with the contractor. And she really started to keep score on how many infractions had been made by the contractor. And everyone on the team was getting frustrated, including her own team members. Over time, this sort of escalated into her writing these very long, like 10, 20 page letters, citing in great detail the various specifications that were not being followed correctly. And it really seemed very difficult for the contractor, even for her own people to get answers and for the project to move forward. And they really did have some very specific problems because they had like water was pumping in the ground and they were trying to pave, they paved anyway. I mean, there was definitely some problems but they just never seemed to get addressed. Instead, they were addressed in these very long letters or in citing of the specification. So of course the project stalled and the letters just grew in length and uh, fervor, I would say. 
But you know, this kind of dynamic really happens all the times on projects. And it happens in our business. It can be very difficult to know what to do. Is the contractor really messing up so much? Sometimes you you don't know. Or is the project manager the problem? Uh, Is it too many issues that have never been dealt with before? You just don't know. It can be really mind-boggling to try to figure out why is this team, this project, this person not succeeding? So I thought I would share with you today four steps, uh, four techniques that I often use when I'm trying to understand performance problems. You know, a lot of times I come in where there's already a lot of stuff brewing and a lot of history that's already happened. And so I have to sort of evaluate what's really going on. So I'm going to share these with you so that you can do this kind of evaluation yourself to try to sort of figure out how you can evaluate these kinds of problems with your people or even your teammates so that you can decide a course of action uh, for your specific circumstances. So I'm really excited to share this and I, I hope they will be helpful to you. So the first step or the first technique is something I call system or process. And this is always the first place I start because I always assume that what's going on, the dynamic that's occurring either in the business on a team between people is not the people involved and not caused by the people involved, but that it is something within the system or process that they're working with, have been given or utilizing that is creating the undesired result. And you can actually test this for yourself in your specific instance. Uh, If you put another person into this role and then you find that you are getting the same poor result, then you know that it isn't the people, it's something in the system or process that's creating this result. And then you have to back up into the process. It could be a policy, even uh, it could be a practice. It could be a process, but you have to back in to figure out what is creating this result. And there's nothing worse than really this because it just undermines the team. You could hire the best of the best people, have a really great person that you put into a poor process or system and you're going to get poor results and that person and the people around them are going to be very frustrated. And often this is when the blame game starts and people start blaming other people when it really isn't the people. So I always start with that assumption that it is not the people. They're all trying to do a good job And they are given a process, a system, a set of rules. Here's a few examples of what this can look like. And these are more project examples. I thought that might be helpful for you. 
So the spec allows for a 20-day review period. And if each reviewer takes the full 20 days, the project would be over schedule by a year, maybe more. But no one ever tells the reviewers what the review time really is. We hear that all the time on projects. Or there is a policy that you must notify for any changes within a certain number of days. But what if you don't know if it's a change for more days than is allowed? See this all the time too. Or the project needs a design update, but the designer is not allowed to help the team because they have other priorities and this project under construction is not their priority. You get the gist anyway. The process or the system is in the way. And so there needs to be something to help them to be successful. And a lot of times you'll find that a lot of conflict is brewed. There's miscommunication. There's blaming. There's poor relationships all around this, but it really has nothing to do with the people. Yeah, I just see it constantly. So that's the first place I go because that is what it's most likely to be. Step two, I call this unwilling or unable. So the next step would be to uh, identify uh, with the people involved, particularly the person or the people with a resistive attitude or where you're seeing a bottleneck, like things are backing up because there's a bottleneck that's developed. Ask yourself, is this person or these people, usually it's better if it's a person, unwilling to do what is needed or are they unable to do it? Whenever you hit resistance, it's always one of these two things. They don't know what or how to do what is needed or what they're being asked to do, or they're unwilling to do it for some reason, or maybe they have multiple reasons. Yes, sometimes it can be both, but usually one outweighs the other. So for example, if a person doesn't know how to do something successfully, they will become unwilling to try over time. So sometimes you can't really tell. Uh, but I also find that it can be a challenge to figure out because people who don't know how to do their job, how to really be successful at it, are often very good at what I call fogging the challenge so that you can't really see what's going on. So then everyone on the team kind of just gets really confused and frustrated. Uh, but the best way to determine if they are able is by their actions. Are they doing what is needed and are they getting resistance from other team members? Look at those two things. Are they doing what they need as needed and they are still getting resistance from other team members? So that will give you an idea whether or not they're unable or unwilling. So if they're able to do it, then you've got something else going on. Takes a little sleuth work. It isn't, it sounds easier than sometimes it is. But if you keep asking yourself, you will get to the bottom of it and you will see it. Now, of course, I see one big pattern all the time is that 
when someone is new to a role, and it doesn't matter whether it's in your business, it's on your projects, it's when a, with an initiative team, uh, they often take a very hard-handed approach uh, because they're learning their job and they begin. They typically overcompensate on what they don't really know or understand the role yet. So, for example, uh, an inspector who's brand new will be able to cite the book and be throwing the book and talk about the book and what the contract says uh, constantly because they don't yet know exactly what it all means and they don't know enough yet to know the nuance of what is possible and what's not possible. And the same thing happens when you're in a new leadership role or if you are uh, taking over a team, uh, taking over a project. I mean, it happens whenever. You could even, I see it happen also when uh, we have a new role, maybe even in the way we're delivering our projects. You can overcompensate in a way rather than being vulnerable and saying, I don't know, and allowing yourself to be mentored and to ask questions. They overcompensate to make it sound, seem like they know. And they protect, they're in a protective mode. And so that is not good. Uh, but with some mentoring, some coaching, this person can learn this role much more quickly and much more in-depthly so that they don't make chaos and enemies while they're undermining the project or the business. If someone understands their role, and they have the skills to perform, and then they are resisting in, for some reason. Resistance, you know, typically has fear behind it. You may see it escalate over time. It just gets bigger. They get more resistive. And so this is sort of what I see happens, the pattern. So first, they just sort of half-heartedly follow through. Secondly, then they'll just stop trying. Third, they actively refuse. And fourth, they leave. And so in this time of the great resignation, this pattern is a really important one to watch for. Do you have people who are resisting, who are not fully engaged? who maybe are actively refusing or, you know, they're, they're leaving uh, well over 60% of all employees uh, right now are talking about leaving and looking for a different job. So uh, this would be a good one to look at. So when people resist, it's because they do not feel valued. They do not feel they're being treated fairly or they don't feel like anybody really cares about them. And you'll see, as I'll talk about this in another uh, one of these steps, these are all partnering values. So of course, you can have a drug and alcohol issue, and I've seen this where show up as unwilling or belligerent maybe even, uh, but when it really is that they're unable. So you have to kind of watch out for that too. But it doesn't usually take too long to sort of figure out that something's not right with the person so that you can lead them to the help that they need. 
uh, and it's not really that they're unwilling. Hope you're enjoying this show. Every time you and your team step foot onto a construction project, you bring your business culture with you. For any construction project to succeed, there must be a high trust culture. It doesn't matter if you're in planning, design, construction, or startup phases. The more trust you bring and build, the better your results. I've created a free resource for you, the Trusted Leader Profile. So you can know exactly the level of trust you bring to your business and projects and what you can do to boost trust. You can grab that at sudico.com slash profile. That's S-U-D-Y-C-O dot com slash profile, P-R-O-F-I-L-E. And I hope that you'll remember that always high trust equals high performance, and it really depends on you. Now back to the show. So determining whether a person is unable or unwilling is so important because the remedy is very different depending on which one they are. Do you need to train and mentor the person who is unable or do you need to break through the resistance of the person who is unwilling? This is a very different approach. And we'll have a very different outcome if you choose incorrectly, but it usually is not that difficult to figure it out. You know, you can even ask them. Sometimes people will say, I don't know, or they'll say, a lot of times I'll say both, but really it isn't both. It's just one has fed the other one, just like I said before. So that is step two. Step three is values fit. So values are beliefs that create cultural norms. A lot of high-handed words that really mean how we work together, how we operate. And really, in other words, they determine how people behave in your team, in your business. So think about how powerful norms are. If I invite you over to my house for dinner with my family, and we have a norm of saying a prayer before we eat, how likely are you that you will also at least act like you are praying when my family does? Extremely high. Yes, people normalize to the norms of behavior. In fact, norms tell us what normal behavior is. So for your business and your projects, you have created cultural norms. And these define your business culture and how you operate. They are always based on what is valued most. And unfortunately, often this is unknowingly and not on purpose. So it just sort of evolves. So uh, values create, show up in attitudes. They create attitudes, but you can see them in attitudes. 
You can't see somebody's values, but you can understand and see and experience them in their attitudes. And then attitudes create behaviors. So if you want to create a certain set of behaviors, you want people to normalize, have these norms of behavior, it always starts with values. So I have identified six partnering values that set the stage for high trust norms. So let me just share these with you real quickly. So partnering values include trust, fairness, transparency, respect, collaboration, and helpfulness. If you evaluate your team members on how much they embrace these values and use them on your project or within your business, you have, you know, if you only have your own set of values, you can add those on too. Just don't have too many values because then there's really no value. But if you have some other special values that are a little bit different to this, that are specific to your business, just add those on. And so I've developed for you a little way to evaluate a person, whether or not they are a values fit for your business or your team. And I really like to do this as a whole team effort, everybody evaluating each other on how well they are really following through and operating under the values of the business. But uh, I'm going to give you a real simple example here where it's just you as the leader evaluating a person on your team uh, or in your business. So uh, we're going to uh, make a list of all the values down this sheet of paper. So we have trust, fairness, transparency, respect, collaboration, and helpfulness all down the left side. And then Next to each one, we are going to put a why if yes, this person exhibits and performs using this value. We're going to put an N if no, this person does not exhibit and perform using this value. And we're going to put an S if sometimes they do this. So in this example that I'm sharing with you, this person in trust we are putting an N. We do not believe that this person exhibits trust. They are not trustful and they are not trustworthy and people just don't trust them. So, and they are, keep everything close to the vest. So yeah, so we're saying no. Fairness, sometimes they seem, seem pretty fair. They seasoned, they understand what's going on. So we're putting an S there. Transparency, we are putting a no there as well. They hold everything close to the vest. So we're putting an N there as well. And then we're going to put a uh, S next to respect because sometimes we do think that they uh, respect people that know what they're doing. So yeah, so sometimes that's happening, yes. And that kind of shows up sometimes in collaboration too. So we're putting that as an S as well. And in helpfulness, we are putting a no. 
they are not helpful because they really expect people to just know what to do and they are impatient. So this person has no yeses that they are adhering and living by the partnering values. They have no's and sometimes. So you could see pretty easily that this person is not a fit for this team. If you want to create a high trust, high performing team, this person has to operate under the values that create that. And for many teams, they have a rule that there can't be one no under the six values to have someone on their team. One no and you're out. And there's others that if you have uh, three S's, even if all the rest are yeses, yeses, you're out. So you can set the standard by which you're going to operate. But just remember that if people aren't embracing and operating under the values that create the norms of behavior that allow for high trust, high performance, then you're going to have a very hard time, likely impossible, highly likely impossible to ever create a high trust, high performing team or project. So sometimes, you know, you you really want to just think about, is this person a fit? And it isn't that they're a bad person. It isn't about that. It's about that they're not a fit uh, for this particular team, for this particular organization. And, uh, you know, could you could do this uh, on your entire team evaluating each other. And uh, just make more uh, places for each person along the, the uh, as you will go along the right-hand side, make more places for each person to do their evaluation. Again, and you set your norms on is one no and you're out from anybody. I've seen teams set those standards. So uh, you will have to decide that for yourself. But here's a very simple way to put your uh, values on the sheet of paper and evaluate, are, is this person, is this, do all the people on my team believe that this person is living these values? And that will make a huge difference for you. Okay, step four, right person, right seat. I tell you, I walk into so many projects and businesses and pretty much as soon as I'm there, I can see that they are not structured to succeed. They do not have the right people in the right seats to make things work. Now, I learned this technique from uh, Entrepreneur's Operating System, EOS. It's a simple way to evaluate your structure to see if you have who you need to succeed and if they are where you need them. So Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, describes the right person as someone who shares the company's values and helps support a culture based on those values. So the right seat means that this person has very good skills for the work that they are required to perform. First, you need to define the seats you need 
and what each person needs to be able to do for that seat, not based on the people that you have or the traditions of how things have been done, but based on what is needed to achieve the vision and goals the business has right now. So this means writing out a description for each of your seats. And it's, this can be done quite simply. Just identify around five major responsibilities for each role. And if you do that, I like to do it on an org chart and you just have the five, then you can see where they're interacting, where they're, maybe you have overlap. It, it makes it real easy. So just five major responsibilities for each role. And, and then once you have defined the seats and you've, you've got them very clear, who's going to do what, uh, then and how it all works together. Like I said, you need to see, make sure if you have two people doing the same thing, well, you're going to have conflict there. So or wh what is one person's role over the others if they're doing similar things? Now it's time to define the right person for each seat. So identify who in your business or on your team will be responsible and accountable for each seat. And in EOS, they use this little evaluation they call GWC. So does the person get it? Basically meaning, do they understand what the position entails? Do they get it? Do they understand this position? Again, can they do it? Then they have W, which is, do they want it? You know, do they want this job? And then C is, do they have the capacity to do the job? So GWC, do they get it? Do they want it? Do they have capacity? And by filling your seats with the right person, you will know that you are structured to succeed. You'll be very confident in that. It makes it pretty darn easy to know and just feel that level of comfort that you know you've got the people in the right places, you have the right people in the right places. Often when you're doing this exercise, you are going to discover people who are not the right person for a seat or for your business, perhaps. And then you can help them find their way out of the team or business to a place where they are a fit. So, you know, there just is this fit factor with values and capabilities and just this gelling that happens. And it doesn't mean someone is bad or wrong. It means they're not a fit for what it is you need at this point for this seat. You may also find people who are the right person. They believe wholeheartedly in the values and the vision of the team or the business, but they're in the wrong seat. They would be able to do better for themselves and for the business in a different seat. So you can move them where they can be successful and where they can offer the most help for the team or the business. The concept of designing all the seats you need for what you need to do and then filling them with the right person for that seat is very powerful, as well as removing people who are the wrong person in the right seat. This is the wrong person for the company, but the seat is the right role for the business. 
Of course, if you find a person who is the wrong person in the wrong seat, well, that's a double whammy. And this person is definitely not a fit uh, for the business. So just continuing the story I started with, uh, so this project leader that was writing long letters citing specs was identified as someone who was a right person, smart, had good values, but in the wrong seat. So she was moved into a more analytical department where she did really well. And the project got back on track and they solved all their issues. And, uh, and it was still a challenge, but they did much, much better. So these four performance evaluations that I've shared here, these steps have allowed me to understand what is needed when leaders hit barriers in their business and their teams and on their projects. So I hope these will be things that you will find useful and you will take them with you as tools as you're on your journey to becoming a trusted leader. Thanks so much and take care. Look forward to next week's episode. Okay, Construction Nation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Lead with Trust. Will you do me a favor? If you think this episode can help anyone on your team or business, please forward it to them. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And your honest review, hopefully five stars, is much appreciated. Every leader who learns how to build their business and projects on a foundation of trust is going to reap the rewards of greater productivity, attracting the best of the best, enjoying your business more, and doing things you thought were impossible. If you want to know where you are in your trusted leader journey, I have a free resource for you. Please just go to sudico.com slash profile, S-U-D-Y-C-O dot com slash profile. And you can grab it there and find out where you are on your trusted leader journey. And so that is a wrap for today. Can't wait until I get a chance to hang out with you again next week. And until then, have a great day.